Welcome to episode 119 with my guest, listener Tom from Portland. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there and uh, fill out the anonymous surveys. And um, you can also see how other people have responded to those. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can join the forum. Lots of people join in the forum and finding kindred uh, spirits there. So please go uh, Please go check it out. And um, what did I want to... Oh, I just wanted to give you an update on uh, week three of the new med. I'm on uh, Lamictal. And uh, I feel like I'm moving in the right direction, like like one step, like five percent better. But it's it's I'm not sleeping as much, which I think is a uh, is a good sign. And I had something interesting happen uh, today. Um, I went to do Lynn Chen's uh, podcast. Um, many of you know Lynn was a, a guest a couple of episodes back. Who um, is just a just a really nice, warm person and. She was so open and honest and vulnerable when I was uh, talking with her on my episode that I got really moved and kind of broke down and we had to turn the pod- the recording off for a little bit um, because I just, um, I don't know, I just, she hugged me and I cried and then I felt bad about it and was like, what am I, am I some kind of fucking weirdo? And when I went to, to, to talk to her um today and do her podcast you know after we talked mostly about uh, about food and stuff like that and after it was over we were talking and we were talking about shame and i guess the reason i want to bring this up is i'm still struggling with shame but what i'm finding out is what i'm ashamed of changes you know, I used to be ashamed of the things that happened to me, the things that were done to me when when I was a kid, and the ways that I reacted, the coping mechanisms that I had, you know, sexually acting out and stuff like that. And, and I used to blame myself, and I'm now to the place where now I see that that's how kids, you know, over... how they react with feelings that are overwhelming and I don't judge myself for that now but what I am judging myself for now is when I talk about that with certain people people who kind of have that vibe that I longed for when I was a little boy and didn't have that mother figure when I talk about those experiences with that person I become triggered I guess is the right word for it it's my heart starts to beat fast I um I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but then I feel shame about it because I feel like um, almost as if I'm using that person. And and Lynn and I were just talking and I was kind of stuck in this. I feel like I'm stuck in this place where I don't know if this is a part of me processing that or if this is me being stuck in something looking for a, a hit from it. But I did feel after talking to her today um that i felt like i let go of some shame I, I helped identify some more of the shame and what form it's now taking on and that by talking about it and shining a light on it hopefully that will help it dissipate and i and i was saying to her i hope i can get to a place in the future 
where I don't feel triggered when I talk about these things and I don't feel like I'm looking for that compassionate face to make everything okay, that face that I wanted when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, and I just wonder if any of you struggle with that when you recount stuff from your past that's painful, that sometimes you get, because sometimes talking about stuff that's painful, I, I, I'll get actually um, turned on and it feels so fucked up to experience that because part of me is like it was yucky and anyway i just wanted to put that out there all right enough of my yakking let's get to some of the uh surveys actually i first thing i want to read is uh an email from a listener named Anne marie and she says uh hi there i was listening to episode 118 uh where uh kulap uh, v returns and heard the you read the survey uh, from the woman who said she wasn't sure if she had been sexually abused and that she went back to the man who she told no to after to make it her choice. I had to pause for a second to question whether I'd written that uh, because it's so familiar to what happened to me. I was raped on a cruise while so drunk I couldn't walk. I told the man no repeatedly and he said if I didn't want to I could leave. I was literally unable to leave and he ignored me saying no and did some really horrible things. I left scratches but he joked the next day that I was quote aggressive. I was mostly blacked out during the rape but I remember bits and pieces of it. He thought it was hilarious to tell me all the things quote we did and couldn't understand why I was upset. It took me about 11 months to call it rape and I had sex with him later on the cruise trying to turn the rape into a vacation fling. One of the biggest turning points for me was reading a book called I Never Called It Rape. It is an amazing book full of stories and survey data. I sat down in the middle of a bookstore and started crying when I read a statistic that said that many women have sex with their rapists afterwards the same way the surveyed woman did and I did. I thought I was crazy and no one could ever understand what I'd done and that it discounted what I'd been through. Knowing that my experience was quote normal and reading about acquaintance rape really helped me get through a terrible time. All my best, Anne-Marie. Thank you for that. This is from the um, Struggle in the Sentence survey. Uh, this one is from a person who calls him, a guy who calls himself putting one foot in front of the other barely. About his depression, he writes, I just don't want to do anything but eat, toke, or jack off. And even jacking off is getting boring. About being an abuser, he says uh, he raped his ex-girlfriend. How did I get there? How the fuck did I think that was okay? Um, this is also from the same survey. This was filled out by Mary about her codependence. She, she writes, constantly reaching out to people in need of a connection that I can never achieve because I want what, what, because what I want is beyond what a human can give. I wish I'd read that one better. I could go back and edit it, but I'm plowing ahead. Um, same survey filled out by Melissa about her depression. She writes, bipolar major depression feels like God's foot is slowly and steadily crushing the life right out of you. About her OCD. OCD is believing the thoughts in your head can create and destroy the world and everyone in it. About her PTSD. She writes, PTSD is knowing in my soul that my dead father's essence can still abuse me. That is fucking deep. And about um, being the victim of child sexual abuse, um, she writes, is feeling like nothing more than a receptacle for other people's filth and scum. I'm sorry that you are 
feeling those things. That sounds really intense, and uh, my heart goes out to you. Um, this is the same survey filled out by Courtney about her anxiety. She writes, I am trying to reach the top of a never-ending stairmaster, but I am constantly freezing and falling to the bottom. Um, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself depression, and about his depression, he writes, everything is wrong in every aspect of my life, and I don't have the energy to do anything about it. Boy, did th- you put uh, what I feel often um, into a perfect sentence. The same survey filled out by Kate, K-A-I-T, about her bipolar hypomania, and she's young, she's between 16 and 19, uh, about her bipolar hypomania, she writes, I'm edging close to jumping off a ledge because I, could be- I believe I can fly. I don't really think I will die. We'll never know until I try. I don't know if those, those are lyrics to a song or not or if she's trying to create a poem. But uh, also about her bipolar rapid cycling, she writes, exhausted and confused. I love life and feel like I can fly. Hours later, contemplate suicide and go so far down, I feel like I can't breathe. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Janice from Space. Uh, he's straight. He's in his 20s. And um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I've been consistently surrounded by suicidal ideas starting around 14 or 15 years old. I've thought up schemes on the best way to do it, but I've never acted on them. It's been a consistent part of my mind clutter all these years, and I just assumed that's how my death would come. Boy, do I relate to that. Uh, When things are going well, I'd only have thoughts like that a few times a week or even a month uh, if they were going really well. I think about it uh, just about all day when things are bad. When I was younger, it gave me strength because I could do anything I wanted. I didn't fear mistakes because I, I could always just kill myself. Now, however, it makes it difficult to plan or think of the future. I'm 29 and only just started talking about it openly in the last few months. Besides telling an ex-girlfriend when we were both drunk two years ago, she never brought it up again. Thinking like a teenager, I believed people who talked about it were fakers, that I had to hold this secret precious and never tell anyone or did lose its power. I can finally let go now that I can envision a future for myself and want all of the things denied me by suicidal thoughts, a career, a wife, old age. That's beautiful that uh, that you've gotten to that place. And then I want to, re- to read his sexual fantasy. He writes, I've got a, th- a thing for hypno... And he didn't have any deepest, darkest secrets. Um, his sexual fantasy, I've got a thing for hypnosis. I can trace it back to an event that happened in second grade. I was talking and playing with the girl sitting next to me in class. At one point, I pretended to be a hypnotist and said the cliche, you're getting sleepy, while pretending to wave a watch back and forth. My friend, knowing the role, closed her eyes and pretended to be hypnotized along along the lines of, yes, master, or something. I felt a strange power and tingle in my groin I'd never felt before, and that's that. I enjoy erotic hypnosis porn, but even regular straight old corny hypnosis, usually so long as it's a pretty woman, will give me an erection. I suspect I would really enjoy being hypnotized by a woman, but my fantasy usually revolves around me being the dominant slash hypnotist. I've never learned how to do it because there never seems to be the time and I never seem to feel confident enough. It remains one of my most potent fantasies because I'd clearly still have it even if the internet and its varieties of porn never existed. I view many other kinds of porn in addition, um, but 
none of it feels as primal or like something I'd actually want to do in real life. Another one that comes to mind, I've always wanted to dress up as a woman and have a date with a girlfriend. Have her come home, have a romantic dinner, have her compliment me on how I look all night, act like everything is normal before going to bed and having sex. Like a cheesy movie with a weird cast. I cross-dress often already and I'm very public about it, but it's never been a sexual thing or part of my masturbation habits. It just seems like fun. Uh, thank you for that, Janice. And then I want to um, take us into the the uh, interview from this email that I got from. She didn't. She didn't. Uh, he or she didn't leave a uh, name or email, so I couldn't contact contact them back but i just want to read this hi paul i've been listening to your podcast for a few weeks mainly catching up on older episodes i have identified a theme of mental illness born out of and or significantly contributed to by childhood trauma i work in the child welfare system and see firsthand how our system is failing our most vulnerable children i cannot help but believe that if we as a society did a better job at helping children who are in crisis it would affect people in their adult lives I see every day how we as child welfare workers move from one crisis to the next in a reactive way rather than acting as proactive change agents. That, coupled with the fact that our system is designed in a way that subjects us to having so many cases, it is impossible to interact with our clients until they have already endured the abuse. The damage has been done. It is so difficult to be part of a system that I know is damaging and subjects me to critique by those who do not fully understand the daily struggles of the nameless, faceless child welfare worker. The fact is that by and large, we do care and care very deeply. I will continue to try and make small changes where I can. To all those readers and listeners who have been children in government care, we do care. We take you home with us. We awaken the night with you in our dreams. We try so very hard not to fail you. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. That is very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with a listener we're going to uh, we're going to call Tom. Um that will enable him to speak more more freely. Um we corresponded what was it? Maybe 6 months ago. Yeah. Was it you or your wife that contacted me? Probably her. Probably her. Yeah, I I think I've sent you a couple a couple emails. The most recent one I just had to do with uh resources about um being a victim of sexual abuse, but my wife I think originally commented you or emailed you about I don't actually I don't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, through through our various emails um 
we decided that it would be it'd be worth a shot to yeah. to get together uh and record um uh I'm up here in your neck of the woods and um so I'm glad you were able to 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 come and record where would be a good place you're how old I'm 31 okay and where would and you're currently in school right mm-hmm. now and uh you're studying psychology how does that make you feel yeah right, <laughs> right. <laughs> um you got a kid and uh-huh. a wife and um where would be a good place to start with your uh, with your story? Where where were you uh, raised? Well, see, I uh, was born in Seattle, and um, I lived there for oh ten years or so. Lived for in Kansas for a little while, and Northern California, and then back up to Seattle. So we moved around a little bit. My dad was a uh, a Baptist minister growing up, um, and so he uh, switched churches a few times. I guess is the I, I don't know how you would put that nowadays, mm-hmm. but. Uh, yeah, so we moved around a little bit. I'm the youngest of three, so I have an older brother and an older sister, and um, yeah, that's probably, I mean, that's the, the basic facts. Was it the real kind of fire and brimstone, fear of God style of... Uh... Yes and no. Um, very much um, fundamentalist, I would say, but... Um, Gays are bad. Yes, um, yes, very much. Drinking yeah, gays is... are bad, abortion bad. Drinking um, bad, 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 uh, smoking bad, um, anything fun, bad, unless it's sports, it was bad. Yeah. So yeah, that's that was that was the basic idea. Okay. Um, and uh, they, um, my parents, both were kind of, oh, the I think they both converted to uh, to Jesus in their teenage years out of pretty horrible backgrounds, uh, and so they really clung to it like hardcore that was their that was their life raft yes exactly yeah so um and uh yeah so we did they convert from something else or just from no religion nothing i don't think okay uh in particular um do you remember what it what it was or who it was that uh, introduced them to the faith i don't you know i think oh you know actually i think my dad's mom my grandmother was a lounge singer and her and which is its own religion. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, her and my grandfather, who was in the Air Force at the time, met, and um, apparently, I, you know, I don't know the details, um, but they, uh, I'm guessing maybe she got pregnant, and they felt guilty, and so they turned from all their bad ways, and I think dabbled in Christianity a little bit, and it wasn't until later that my dad got introduced to it, kind of through that experience again later on. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, my... Uh, I don't think they they came they they didn't come from anything. Okay. They don't really talk about it though. Okay. To be honest, but oh, do you still keep in touch with them? No, not really. Okay. So um, yeah, we can talk more of that process. But um, no, well, I, I should say that um, I've told them if they want to talk with me, they can write me letters. Okay. Um, but that's about it. You too, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> at least right now, that's where my dad passed away, but that's where I'm at with the with my mom. Yeah. But, um, so. You were you were raised in this um, strict. Yeah, you know, actually, I was. For me, it wasn't as strict. Uh, my sister was like the perfect student, the perfect kid. Um, she, they were pretty strict with her. And then my brother came along, and he was more of the black sheep. Um, you know, more rebellious, um, more outward with his rebellion. And by the time they got to me, I think they were just kind of tired, and so. I had... You were the baby? Yeah. Three kids? Exactly, yeah. I I was 
there's so few rules with me. Like mm-hmm. I in high school, I never had a curfew or anything like that. Um, yeah. How would they? How would they um, discipline or reprimand you? Was was it mostly just with their words? Was it actions? <laughs> no, it was. Um, well, I remember my dad. Uh, I, I got spanked a few times, and it was always you know. Um, thinking about it now, it's kind of comical because um, I remember telling my mom. You know, she goes, do you want a spanking? And I said, from you? Sure, I don't care. Because, <laughs> you should have mom. But my dad was more of an intimidating figure. But main, the main form of punishment that I remember was, uh, I think I had said something to my brother, like, fuck you, I hate you. And so I had to write out, I had to write my brother a love letter. And I had to rewrite the whole book of Proverbs. Wow. Yeah. And my brother had to rewrite the whole book of Psalms at one point, which is long. Um and so I remember those punishments, but I, you know, I don't remember actually a lot of punishments to be perfectly honest. Um, I was a pretty good kid, so I didn't really get a lot of that, but. And so, um, and what your mother, was she a homemaker? What? That's, that's a word you could use. Um, yeah, yeah I, 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 um, well, he was a minister, so yes. did, did, did that put food on the table? For it you did. Guys? It, well, for the most part, you know, we, I always heard about how poor we were, um, <clears throat> always uh growing up my dad is no longer a minister he's now a salesman um not much of a difference no no difference (laughs) at all none at all i matter of fact i remember one time i read something that he wrote that said i used to save souls for eternal life and now i just i I used to sell eternity now i sell something else and i gives me the just the chills thinking about that but um how kind of creepy that is but uh uh yeah, she was a homemaker. She worked part-time when I was older. But the reason I hesitated was because um, my mom, in so many ways, was a very lovely woman. But um, homemaking probably wasn't her strength, I don't, I don't think. Um, I mean, I've been a stay-at-home dad before for three years, so I know it's not easy. And but, by the way, I, ju- I just want to in- interject that um, when I get glib about organized religion, uh, it's not all organized religion, but so much of it is used car sales yes and there's good ones out there yes. and people with <laughs> deep faith that walk the walk that i have the utmost respect for but they seem to be in the minority yes yes that is true i i, I would concur with that um yeah and my my dad was uh definitely a salesman and a shark yeah. um yeah yeah not really a, a one who walked the walk I mm-hmm. would say, for instance can you give me some examples of the the differences between what he preached and how he acted sure um well first off my dad is um a really good narcissist like maybe even antisocial i mean I don't, i'm not a clinician so i can't mm-hmm. really speak to that but when i read through those characteristics it's just like wow it's it it fits him pretty well but he um but he has a level of sophistication to it so you know most people don't even realize you know that he's really only into himself uh, i remember um, <clears throat> just as his son, I remember I was uh, 18 and uh, I was getting ready to go on a trip to Mexico with some friends to help build houses and I needed a sleeping bag. So, um, he said, Oh, Hey, I, you know what? I got a sleeping bag that I got at REI. I'll sell it to you for 50 bucks. And I was like, well, I can just go buy one for 150. He said, no, 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 take this one. You know, it's, you can buy it for me 50 bucks. And so he sold it to me and come to find out it's like 20 years old and Kind of a piece of shit, and and how old were you? Eighteen. So weird that he would sell it to his kid. Yeah, you're right. I know, right? One of my friends told me that they said, "Why didn't he just give it to you?" And I was like, 
I don't know. You know, later on, I look at that story and I think, oh, because that was my dad. That's that's the way he operated. He had to get something out of everything. Yeah, exactly. And he he even with his own son, in a lot of ways, uh, with his own family, he always had his kind of interests in mind. Um, but you, you, when you're in his family, you're kind of under the spell a little bit. So until you get away from it, and you don't really see the wizard behind the curtain. You don't. You don't. And it's once you see it, you're like, oh my god. But, um, I mean, that was just one of the little examples. I mean, that's part of the reason why we, we went to so many different churches um, is because that once his act was kind of up um, or he got caught up in something, um, according to him, it was never his fault. He never did anything wrong. But when you leave, like, three churches in a row... Like, what were the accusations? Um, you know, I, I don't even know all of them, to be really honest. I know one was he, again, sold something um, at a much higher value than it was worth to one of the other pastors using church funds. Um, I know at one point he was, like, giving a sermon about church leadership and what that should look like, and it was a two-part sermon. And then he was asked to leave between the two parts. Like That's never good. No, it's never good. And, you know, I, I have no idea. I was young enough, and they really kept me kind of away from it, which I'm kind of glad for. But knowing my dad now, I'm like, there's no way this guy was 100% innocent. Yeah. Not a chance. You know, it seems like such a dangerous venture to paint yourself as a man of God or a woman of God, because we're all so fucking fallible, and we're all <laughs> so complicated, and we're all filled with contradictions and... yeah. And the, the shadow self that Jung talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, man, that just seems like a recipe for disaster, ever portraying yourself as anything but a flawed, needy, scared human being walking right. blindly through a terrifying universe. Exactly. Yeah, when it lacks humility, it is dangerous. Yeah. Like, and I think with my dad, that's kind of how it ended up. Is, uh, he uh, well now that I'm an adult and kind of away from it, I could see in the many ways there wasn't a lot of humility or empathy there. But he was very good at portraying humility or empathy. Just never really had it. And I wonder if that's a quality of of the narcissist is knowing w- how to portray what they need to portray yeah. to get what they need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have I've you know I've done a little bit of reading about what makes a narcissist. Um, because my whole family, like that whole axis of personality disorders, you know, the narcissism, the histrionic, the bi or the, um, not bipolar, borderline, uh, thank you, borderline, um, antisocial, my family's full of it. Um, like there's so much of all those things just everywhere that, um, you know, it's hard to distinguish sometimes between the two. Um, I mean, no one in my family has been officially diagnosed. But what narcissist goes and gets diagnosed? Um, <laughs> I mean, who does that? But um, uh, I mean, my brother's been diagnosed, um, kind of, but uh, no one else has. But you can just see it. It kind of seeps out of everything. And that's part of what the He's been diagnosed is. as a narcissist? No, no, as a, um, a rule out. So he's been um, a rule out of both uh, borderline and antisocial. Um, what does that mean? So I think a rule out means that they have to rule out borderline or antisocial that it's probably one of these two things that's what's part of what's going on um and so they they just don't they haven't had spent enough time with him yet to rule out one or the other 
Um, I might be portraying that wrongly, but I don't know. But again, this is from... That's one of the nice things about this show is we don't pretend to be experts. I'm not and, a professional. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we usually get uh, nice emails from people that, that are mental health professionals that do straighten it out sometimes. Uh, so yeah, for us. so give us the definition of rule out. But I think, you know... But, we'll give our listeners something to Google too. Yeah, exactly. Well, to be perfectly honest, this is all from my brother's, what he, what he told me. Um, and he doesn't tell the truth all the time. Um, at least you don't know when he is a lot of times. That's so, going to be frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, very frustrating because he's actually the one family member that I really um, have had a relationship with that wasn't completely fucked up. Um, and um, that we kind of worked through some stuff together because there were some events that happened that once I kind of talked about it within the family, I kind of got put in his camp of black sheep. And so he and I got to really connect um, what did your sister do to kind of... Uh, well, um, uh, when I was... Because, by the way, when you mentioned that she was perfect... Yes. I was... My first thought was, well, how did she explode? Yeah. How did, how did that... Because <laughs> um, that is always the ticking time bomb, the person in the, with the overly controlled parents, and yeah. they are doing everything to be perfect. It's like that, that bubble is going to pop, pop somewhere. Well, at first... Um, it kind of popped on me um, because when I was five, four and five, between four and six years old, because I'm not too sure, but my sister at that point was like 12, 13, 14, but she actually um, uh, would come into my room and rape me at night. Uh, um, I, it was more than once. I remember more than once, but I don't remember how many specific times it was. But um, obviously she was at an age where that doesn't happen out of nowhere. I mean, something happened to her. Um, but uh, so it kind of, her perfection or need to explode kind of took, she took it out on, on other people. Um, I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. Yeah, me too. Um, thank you. Uh, it wasn't, um, it's a weird, it's not weird, I shouldn't say that. But, you know, I really didn't acknowledge it till I was 18. Um, I remember thinking things along the way. Um, I remember being like in fifth grade and in an elementary class and having the talk on, you know, your swimsuit areas and where you shouldn't be touched. Mm -hmm. um, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that happened to me, but I can't talk about it. Like, I remember that. Um, and I remember, I think, in the middle of a fight when I was a teenager yelling at my sister, like, you know, you molested me, you raped me, and she just kind of played dumb. Um, but and it wasn't until I was 18 that I really kind of realized I have something I need to deal with. Um, and uh, that's what I, you know, I dealt with it. I guess that's the best way to put it. But. There's so many questions that I that I want to ask you because it's so rare that you get... Uh, what happened to you is, is not rare, according to the therapists that I've seen mm -hmm. and the surveys no, that yeah. I read that people fill out and the people that I know from my support groups. But because there's an erection involved, so much gets misconstrued. Um, was it misconstrued in your mind what what was happening? Because clearly for, for her to be able to, to rape you, mm -hmm. you had to have an, an mm -hmm. erection. Mm -hmm. So what... Can you walk me through in your mind what 
as that child you are thinking and experiencing when something like that is happening because there's such a dichotomy between what your soul is feeling and what your body is feeling. Mm-hmm. I think confusing is the was the best word. What was her what was her demeanor like? Was it how would she present it to you? Would she say anything? Was it couched yeah. in something? Mm-hmm. She would um she was very aware that what she was doing was wrong. Um I mean she was 12, 13, 14, so although there is a level of um child uh, childness in her as well. She was very much knew what was happening, what was going on. <clears throat> I loved my sister. And so this was my first exposure to anything sexual. And so I didn't even know. I think she just described it. I think she just called it smooching. Um, and you know, and that became like a trigger word for me later. Um, just that word, oof, just saying it is kind of, what do you, what do you feel when you hear that word? Oh, I'd go right back. I've, I'm the little boy laying down on a bed again, um, and uh, yeah, it's um, it's pretty visceral actually. But um, uh, she would. Um, it was never forced or rough. I was pretty much the silent partner, um, uh, and um, you know, now as an adult, I, I know that she was working out trauma onto me because I was a safe place for it. Um, but it's still pretty fucked up because yeah. well, it's really fucked up. Um, cause I obviously was coming out of cost of me, you know? Um, and, uh, so, um, but yeah, do you she, think she was doing that to your other brother as well? Um, he had told me that she did. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of what I believe. Um, but again, you know, with my brother, I don't quite know sometimes what's 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 fiction, what's not. Um, but that's what he's told me. Yeah. Do you? Who do you think was abusing your sister? No clue. So, well, I don't know anything for sure. Um, but I've asked her um, what happened. What I think I asked her. You know, you obviously didn't learn these things from anywhere, and this is all in a letter. And I said, you know, where did what happened to and, you? And how long ago was this? Oh man, that's a good question. This had to be 2006, 2005, maybe around then. Um, because you know, the, the abuse was hard enough to work through. Um, but the way my family dealt with it was almost equally as hard to work through. Um, I say this all the time. It, it breaks my fucking heart when a kid or a young adult goes to their family with this news that is so fucking hard to talk about and they get re-traumatized again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's been a lot of work <laughs> to be honest. I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah. Thank you. It's, um, uh, it was, yeah, it took a lot of work. Um, and, uh, but, um, I, I don't know who abused my sister. Um, I asked her and she said that essentially, um, it wasn't worth sharing because it would hurt us too much. And so, you know, your mind can go a thousand different places, what that means. Yeah. Um, is there anybody listening that doesn't think it's your dad? Yeah, right. I mean, that's immediately where you go, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, 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 we might get into this a little bit later, you know, uh, but I, I asked my dad, not did he do this, but I said, how come you don't wonder what happened to your little girl? Because being a parent now, you better believe I'd be 
fucking figure out what happened, you yeah. know? Um, and it'd be, there'd be a lot more pro- proaction there. Um, but there wasn't by my parents, both of them. There wasn't, um, well, I shouldn't say that. Their methods of dealing with it were so detrimental to actually dealing with it that, um, yeah. Um, but I, I say that also knowing that my mom grew up in a horrible home where, you know, multiple abusers, both sexual, physical, emotional. Um, and so her emotionally, she's, she's like six or seven years old in a lot of ways. And so I wouldn't expect her to be able to deal with it much, but she was the mom. So the responsibility did fall on her. So you have clearly done a lot of work on yourself because you're, I'm, I'm struck by the amount of compassion and clarity that you have on something that's so intense. Yeah. Intense is a good word. I wasn't always so <laughs> clear though. I, I had a, you know, I, I think, um, part of what deters sometimes people from being able to look at a situation, um, with the most, you know, sober eyes you can, because I still can't look at it without, you know, being the victim in the situation, obviously, cause I was, but, um, I had to allow myself to not have sober eyes. You know, I had to get, well, pissed, hurt, go through, uh, kind of live through it again to a degree, um, in, with a therapist, with a professional, not just like reading a book or not with a rodeo clown. Yeah, exactly. It was one of the worst people to work through a molestation <laughs> with. Yeah. Well, they just don't take anything seriously. <laughs> like, you know, I, oh, they're always, yeah, bright colors and just annoying. <laughs> But, um, yeah, you know, walk, walk me through the, the arc of it from when it happened to the, the various, how you view it and process it, because clearly it, it changes, you know, from the very first instance, it may even be, oh, this is, this is nice. I'm getting this attention. Cause like when the, the, the neighbor kid molested me. I didn't even think that this was like an act of, um, I don't know what you want to call it, power or control. It, it was, you know, I was kind of a, I just wanted to hang out with him. He was, mm-hmm. he was four years older than me. He was 15. I was 10 or so. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I just like spending time with this guy. Yeah. And it started to feel weird. And so I stopped it. But I, how I viewed it, it took me probably 10 years, probably longer, probably 30 years to go, oh my God, that, that was molestation. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was, yeah, that was molestation. Yeah. To come to that realization, to me even to use that word, by the way, yeah. took me a long time. Yeah. Like, and do you call it rape? It took me a long time. Sure. At first it was just, she inappropriately touched me right. or something, you know, that was still in some ways protecting her. Um, and I think <clears throat> part of the reason is, is because when I was a kid, I don't think I could handle the processing that, you know, when I was five, I don't think I could handle the fact of what my sister was actually doing to me. And so in some ways I think my brain was protecting me. Um, what did your brain tell you back then? Uh, to be quiet. Um, did any part of you feel special or did you feel like you were being tricked? Um, I remember, I don't remember feeling special. I, um, well, no, I take that back. Actually. I did feel special. I did feel, um, that, oh, she, we get to 
do this thing. Yeah. Which Cause that's what like, I felt when I was yeah. with that guy. I was like, I don't really like this, but I feel special. Yeah. 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 And it, it felt special until, uh, one time, um, we were in her room and, um, I think my, somebody knocked on the door and I think it was my dad and I had to go hide under the bed. That's what I was told to do was go hide under the bed. So I hid under the bed and then my dad left and all of a sudden I didn't, I didn't feel special anymore because I realized like what, you know, I knew that I should hide. I mean, I knew that too. Like I knew what was going on wasn't good and I, but I just, I, I'm a kid so I didn't know, um, why it was bad. Um, so I, I definitely, it was definitely, um, you know, I felt physical pleasure, obviously for sure. Um, and it introduced sexuality to me at a young age, which, you know, which you can get into later. But, um, uh, I did feel special. Um, I also felt, uh, kind of spit upon, I guess in a way, um, particularly after that event, when I was told to hide her in the bed, I really didn't know. I knew why. I, I, it's a bad way to say. It. I knew why I was hiding under the bed because mm-hmm. what was going on was wrong, um, but I didn't know why I had to hide under the bed as a five-year-old. Both those, both those feelings at the same time. I would imagine too that then you think you're the one to blame because you're the one that has to hide. Oh yeah, I I took ownership over the guilt. Right oh away. my god, how could you not? Yeah, and that's and that's part of the reason why I never talked about it. You know, because um, I had to protect my sister. Oh. Um, and that's, that's, that's why I held part of the reason why I held it so tight, um, for so long was because I didn't want to hurt her. And you can see that how flawed that is obviously, but at the same time, that's kind of what happens in abuse, um, is the victim both gets abused and gets to carry the weight of it too. Yeah. And the abuser sometimes gets to walk away. Um, well, they don't really walk away. They're carrying stuff too, but, um, and that's, that's the way it was, you know? So, you hide under the bed. Does that change things for you? Then um, you said then you didn't you didn't feel as special. as special. Yeah, you know, I don't really know. I don't. Um, I'm pretty sure it happened more than I remember. Um, but I don't remember specifically why it stopped. My sister said um, that it stopped because my my mom found out. Um, and that my mom told her to stop. And being how many years did it go on for? Um, uh, or was it not years? Between two and three years. Okay. Um, is what how, I remember it happening when I was like four or five, and I remember it happening when I was like six. So, in that time. Frame. God, that's so young. Yeah, that's so young. Oh yeah, my son's four right now, and yeah, I don't, I don't even know how to think about that. You know, knowing that I have a four-year-old now, and that's the age I was. Um, the other day, we were in a store, and I saw him walking, and it hit me that I was that age. And I almost lost in the store, just because of how young I was, how innocent, you know, that that kid is. It's amazing what comes up for people when they have children, and they are able to see their own innocence. I, yes. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, when my wife was pregnant... Um, that's when I really started to say, Hey, what the hell? <laughs> you know, like I started to think the lengths I would go to for, for my kid that, that was still sitting in my wife's stomach, um, or uterus. Sorry. No, she didn't have an ass baby. No, she didn't have an ass baby. Thank God. <laughs> um, I, I was so worried. Um, but, uh, 
No, uh, when I began to realize the links I would already go to, all of a sudden I started saying, wait a minute, you know, like what happened here? Like, why wouldn't, why aren't you guys asking more questions? Like, what, what is the deal here? Why didn't you guys ever, my, my mom says that she did bring it up with me when I was young. I just don't remember it. Um, but it was never brought up again. And my sister told me that my parents didn't know when we were older. Um, and so I always went on the assumption that they didn't know. And so, um, uh, that's how I kind of dealt with them, um, for a while. But yeah, when, when I started having my own kid, it was, uh, night and day. I was like, whoa, none of this is, not only is this not okay, but the way you're dealing with it is so self-protective, not of any consideration of your kids. I wonder how often postpartum depression in women is related to them suddenly having that baby, you know, beyond the chemical, Mm -hmm. but triggered by the suddenly realizing their responsibility and, and how, how much their, the parent that molested them failed them. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure because you know, there is a way to which all of our parents are fail, of course, um, to varying degrees. But, uh, yeah, when you have your own kid, it's, it's, it's humbling, but at the same time it's empowering because I think I, I mean, I realized it's how much I would do for my son, but I also felt incredibly guilty too, because, um, I'm not a perfect guy. Um, there are many ways where I fall short, you know, um, as a dad. Um, and I'm like, man, I, I've been through what it's like to be on the opposite side of, or being the kid of parents who failed miserably in a lot of ways. And that's one of my biggest fears is being anything resembling that. But I know I have this capability to be that. Um, I, and I think the fact that you're cognizant of the fact that you want to be a, a certain type of parent, that you're striving for that, mm-hmm. um, that seems to me to be the most important thing is that you're conscious of that. Yes. You're not wrapped up in all your own bullshit. Yeah, right. Like, it sounds like your dad was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> way to put it. He, he had a lot of bullshit he was wrapped up in. Um but uh, yeah. So getting getting back to the to the arc of the how you viewed what what happened to you, um, what what was the next kind of seminal moment in how you viewed it? Um, I will. I was in high school. The next time it really came up to me, I was in or became a little bit more crystallized in my mind. I was in high school and um, we were. Uh, um, there was a, uh, again, I mean, my, my dad was a pastor, so I was going to church and in a youth group and there were, we had student led small groups and the particular group I was in, we had started this, uh, I guess you could kind of based off of Seinfeld in the way, you know, who can go the long without masturbating fund. And so we all pitched in like 10 bucks and whoever made the longest without masturbating got all the money. Um, and you must've really trusted each other to tell yeah, the right? truth. Looking back, yeah. I'm like, what the hell were we thinking? Yeah. Like, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, because in, in that realm, you know, masturbating is bad. So, um, and we're, we're all like 16 or 17. So it was happening frequently. Um, and so we felt a lot of guilt. Uh, but um, anyway, we so were, you were all Baptist kids. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, I'm trying to remember at that point. I don't think we were all Baptist kids. I think some of the kids weren't, weren't uh, hadn't grown up and like going to church at all. But um, we were talking about, you know, uh, talking about this and talking about you know the first time we ever masturbated and they're all like saying oh yeah you know i was like 13 i was 12 i was 14 blah blah blah, and i was seven um because i i learned that rubbing down there felt good you know i learned that you could uh, get a lot of pleasure from that because of uh, uh what my sister did to me so 
I immediately... Had you had an orgasm? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, well, kind of a funny story is um, the first time I masturbated and ejaculated, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And I that thought, makes two of us. Yeah, right? I thought my bones were melting. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first thought. I was like, holy shit, my bones are melting because I masturbate, you know, like, yeah. or something. And I, I got freaked out. How old were you? Oh, 11, 12, maybe, yeah. I think, around there. I don't remember the age I was, but I remember, I remember it. I remember just being freaked out because I didn't had any, my parents actually kept me out of a sex ed class. Um, I, it was, you know, one of those classes where you have to go home, have your parents sign something to say it's okay for you to come and they didn't sign it. Oh, the irony. I, right. I know. Oh, that could the have irony. saved me some heartache. <laughs> just know that, that men ejaculate would have helped me. I would but, imagine too, if your, if your dad was abusing y- your sister, he wants to stay as far away from anybody having any knowledge about what healthy sex is as I, possible. I, yes, yeah. And, and you know, um, I should clarify, I don't know if my dad uh, molested my sister. I would just say I have no evidence to the contrary. Um, and so, uh, but... Um, I'm going to play Nancy Grace here okay. and try him <laughs> in a public court. I'm fine with it. Um, that's fine. Uh, um Yes, but yeah, anything healthy, you know, it's it's And funny. I wouldn't do this if we were using your real name, by the way, That's because fine. I would give him that, the, the, the benefit, benefit of, of that. Yeah. But since we're talking about, uh, yeah. yeah, Tom's dad here. Um, but uh, yeah, no, anything resembling healthy sexuality was not really around in our house. Um, lots of repression was, though. Um, like, I remember... Repression makes for some good fucking... Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, you know, well, they didn't want me to learn about, you know, sexual anatomy because I might get someone pregnant. You know, I guess, I guess was the fear. Um, but, uh, you know, irony was, is when I was around the same time um, where I'm having this talk with my friends, uh, this was back when internet was first coming up. And so every high school kid knew more about the internet than their parents did. Uh, and so my dad wasn't, didn't know about these things called, you know, search histories quite yet. And so I, on his computer, I, I noticed that he was searching for erotic massages, um, you know, around town and, um, I was like, huh, you know, and at this point I'm kind of more aware of the sickness in the family. And so I was like, well, this, this is just a cherry on top of everything, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, uh, all this sexual abuse happens in the family. And yet, you know, here's dad being a preacher and seeking out happy endings. Um, so, uh, that, and how did your friends react when you told them that you were seven? Um, I didn't tell them. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, uh, um, I told Did you him, feel shame? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I felt shame. I felt... Uh, oh, man. I felt like an idiot. Did you, at, at that age when you began masturbating at like seven, was that like your go-to for soothing your feelings then? Was yep. that... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It became... And how frequently? Uh, once or twice a week, I think. Yeah. It, it um, wasn't until I was in high school that it was more like regular part um you turned pro yeah exactly i uh well you know i i would say that i got to a good amateur level you know maybe (laughs) triple a um but uh then the internet came along and then you became a pro um but uh yeah um yeah it's you know once twice a week i mean i remember sitting in class you know in elementary school and getting an erection and wishing i was at home so i could take care of it as like a third grader what what does 
when you're that age and you're masturbating, what do you think about? What what kind of fantasies does a kid have at that age? I don't even remember. Um, Is it just about like well, classmates? Or? Well, I think, you know, when I was five or six, um, we were at a friend's house and someone had taken their dad's porno stash or something. And so I thought about women. Um, but I also remember it being a really stressful experience because I was so worried I'd get caught because um, there was a lot of shame around it. So um, I don't remember really what I was thinking about, but I do remember having some attraction to women, mm-hmm. um, I guess. How has it affected... Well, is there anything else in the in the arc that we're skipping? Well... Because I, be, before we finish i also want to ask you how you think it's affected your your sexuality yeah sure um that's uh, a good thing to um well we can talk about that um because there is more to the story because so much of the story happens in adulthood when we start to talk about it in, a, in the family context and kind of the reactions and everything but um as far as it affected my sexuality you know um uh i felt immense guilt about sex for a long time um uh, everyone's first sexual experience is usually pretty sloppy. Um, mine was just full of guilt. Um, and also was really triggering. Um, what did you think or, or feel? Um, I felt, uh, scared. I felt ashamed. Um, partly because it was more of like a one night stand. Um, and so it wasn't even a context of relationship. And so it was, um, uh, yeah, there wasn't really any connection to it. And at that time, that just felt like the worst thing ever. You know, I mean, I grew up in a religious household, so that kind of was yeah, the worst guilt thing. coming from every angle. Yeah, yeah, it was. So um, I wouldn't say it affected my sexuality in the terms of, um, like, on the continuum of attraction, um, per se. But, you know, like, I definitely, you know, some of the... the um, my sexual preferences as far as, you know, positions or whatever I totally know can come from that. Um, but I've also, um, had enough, uh, healthy experience now that a lot of that has been able to be worked through. Um, and so, uh, both in therapy, were you attracted to the positions that you learned or repulsed by the positions you learned? Attracted. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the, the case with, with people that had, a sexual trauma as as kids like I, I remember this one survey um in particular where this guy um his babysitter made him uh finger her and i think she was a redhead and he the only thing he can really come hard to is a redhead a, a redhead and digital manipulation uh videos of that on the internet that's mm-hmm. like his his thing and and on and on and on with mm-hmm. so many of these people that have the surveys and they mistakenly think that that oh that means that i must have wanted it that that's my thing instead right. of this is a trauma i'm trying to right work, well, work through and i know i can speak for my sexuality it was so impressionable um particularly when i'm that young that of, of course you know um, I might, you know, like it on top or whatever it may go to or redheads and fingering. Mm. Um, it's so impressionable, um, um, particularly when you first get exposed to it. I mean, I think a lot of people have such fond memories of their first experiences, not necessarily if they're traumatic, that even though it was like like a mutual 
you know, your teenagers or your adults, that those experiences still are really um, points of pleasure, you know, Mm -hmm. that you can still draw a lot of preference from those points, even if they weren't traumatic. Yeah. So what's the next place in the arc of you dealing with this? So um, when I'm 18, um, I'm again at a church event and the speaker is talking about his molestation, how he was... uh, molested as a boy and I just break down in tears and I realize holy shit this happened to me so I um, I go ahead and write a letter to my sister and as the good Christian thing to do it was a letter already forgiving her of everything um, <clears throat> which later got held against me uh, by her and my mom but um, uh, I wrote her a letter saying you know this is what happened but don't worry essentially it was hey you rate me but don't worry I forgive you um, don't get, Isn't there a card for that? Yeah, right. <laughs> if there's not, there should be. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but you, you know, you could make it flexible. It could be emotional rape. It could be you know whatever kind of rape <laughs> you want. So, um, but uh, yeah. Uh, and so my sister responded, you know, in a letter, and she says, you know, I'm so sorry. This is the one thing I hadn't told my husband. Um, which I don't know if he told her. I don't know if I was a husband. How I'd react to that news. But um, uh, but uh, she said what. She said that, that was the one thing that she's never told her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I I can't imagine being her husband. I mean, you know, hearing mm-hmm. the news. Oh, hey, by the way, when I was a kid, I read my little brother. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to respond to that uh, exactly. But, um, uh, you know, so our, I kind of said, you know, water under the bridge. Let's not worry about it. Um and then time went on, and I've... Were you burying your anger at this point, or did you genuinely feel compassion and forgiveness? At the time, it sure felt genuine. Okay. Um, but I don't think I was aware of it, really. I mean, I was 18, and I was more concerned with her being okay and more concerned with my family being okay. And that was the role I had growing up. I was usually the peacemaker. When my mom was crying hysterically, I was the one comforting her, Um you know, I was the one who tried to have a foot in everyone's camp, kind of. So I assumed that role in this situation, too, that I was I was one who bear the pain for everybody, and I was going to continue to do so. But I'm the one who can also control this and make this right. Right, right. So, um, exactly, yeah. Instead of thinking about what my needs are, yeah. how can I wrap this up in a neat little bow so nobody has to feel any discomfort except me? You know, my first therapist's name was Paul. And he said almost exactly that same thing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, exactly. Uh, that I was concerned about how I can make this okay. Um, and so, um, without any real regard to me. But as time went on, I did find myself angry at my sister. And I didn't know why. Um, <laughs> shocking. Um, and so, and as time went on, I found myself angry at my parents. And I found that when I began to um, go to therapy and really dive into some of this stuff um, and go through what that was like and talk about these experiences um, that um, I, you know, I quickly realized that I have very little in common with these people. Um, That I have a desire and a need to want to dive in and they keep refusing to do that with anything. Um, And so... um, yeah, and that, that is when I began to um, really try to um, connect with them on a level that I never had before. And I started to say, hey, to my sister again, you know, like, can I ask you questions about what happened? Is that okay? 
can I ask you questions? And she said yes. And so I sent her all these questions about, you know, why did this happen? Do you remember this? Some of the more particular details. Um, and all I got was a big fat, I don't know or I don't want to say. And so, and that was her later saying, I, you know, I've done everything you wanted. I don't know why you're still mad at me. Um, and wow. Right. I know. And now I'm like, I wonder why I'm mad. You know, like, and there was always this, um, in that relationship, there was always this overarching idea and feeling that I had to be in a relationship with her and that I had to like her. Right. Even though she raped me. Like, yeah. And you know, it, if, if she had been open or will ever be open, it seems, to talking about this. There's there's so much potential for forgiveness, no matter what people have done to each other. Absolutely. But so many people make the mistake of thinking they've got to lock it down and they can't be vulnerable and they can't admit. And my the thought that just keeps ringing in my head is, well, then she's going to have to confront what happened to her, and mm-hmm. that's why she's locking things down because mm-hmm. that is for if you're if it was your dad, mm-hmm. who is probably super manipulative if he's a narcissist mm-hmm. and is good really, at getting really she good knows that she's going to need the best trial attorney in the world to even get him to acknowledge that there was mm-hmm. something and that has got to be overwhelming on top of the thought of opening up all that pain mm-hmm. and thinking more about what she did to you and mm-hmm. so much easier to just say that was in the past let's mm-hmm. let's move forward which i would imagine is like the most natural thing in the world for a human being that has no emotional tools to do to just want to lock that down and move forward but yeah, absolutely but man, it is a f- it's a fucking anvil around your around mm-hmm. your feet thinking that you can just compartmentalize that part of yourself and it's not going to come out some other way yeah you know and she um she said that she read a book and since she wrote this book this was like some kind of christian heal yourself book that things things were fine so she doesn't need to really talk about it you know and she said she claimed that you know she's 100 percent healed from all this stuff which was funny because it never involved saying sorry to me um she never said sorry well she said sorry in my f- first letter but when i began to ask her more questions um it was always there was her responses were always in this kind of angry kind of tone yeah and so um it became whenever if i ever brought it up it was because i was still holding it over her head How can she not feel that if she's not ready to confront the person yeah. that did it to her? Because then she's she's caught between a rock and a and a hard place, and yeah. she's getting it from from both. And I don't mean this as a sexual innuendo, but she's getting it from both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's both the she's both the the rapist and the victim, right? And she's getting no comfort or compassion from anybody Mm-mm. no she just has, who wouldn't want to avoid that exactly no exactly you know and I, to be perfectly honest paul after i first went to therapy the first first year or so was spent um really in that area of of wow what happened to her um and um i had a i got beyond that because i had spent so much time worrying about her that i was still not even acknowledging me mm-hmm. um, one thing my dad would later say was he says you know she was just a kid and my immediate reaction was, well, 
so was I. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, for her, a kid means she's not really responsible. Right. For me, being a kid, it 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 meant um, victimization. Yeah, and, and and I think people miss the point that they think the dredging up of the past is to lay blame and hold it over somebody and make them feel bad, but it's not. It's to help the victim process it yeah. so that they can get to a place of peace and ultimately not hold it over the other person. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to convey that to, to to somebody when you confront them about that. And maybe that's what we need to do is to say, hey, look, I'm not looking to hold this over your head for the rest of your life, but mm-hmm. I've got these emotions built up in me because of what happened that I need to process. And part of that involves talking honestly with you about this and needing questions answered and talking about how I feel. Exactly. I, I don't know if that's realistic to expect that to be uh, yeah. a, a way to approach somebody or not, but I think people that I think people that grow up in silent shaming households that that fucking bank vault closing is just the way to deal with mm-hmm. things because they think everything is about power and something being held over your mm-hmm. head and it's going to be that way forever. Right, right. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's um if you believe in defense mechanisms, it's it's the defense mechanisms, it's repression. It's it's a way to protect yourself, but unfortunately, it can be really unhealthy. Um and and modern religion isn't really too great as a model for things not being forever. <laughs> no, it's it's really good at guilt and shame. Um, it's it's not good at um, healing things, I guess I would say. I mean, you know, I don't want to speak to um, – I can only speak to my experience, but I learned pretty pretty quick when I started dealing with this stuff that I would never be close to my sister. There was nothing that could be done to, to really do that. I mean, it's – I can't imagine sitting down and having coffee with with her. If she and had then, reacted differently, do you think that would be possible? Absolutely. Yeah. N- no question about it. But um, I, I I even hesitate to say this, but you know, rapists generally aren't the most personable folks. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and what I mean by that is that. Um, uh, we can't, uh, I can't say that, um, in this particular scenario, this scenario isn't, it is a lot like the guy who, you know, knocked out a girl and took her into the woods and raped her. It's a lot like that actually. Um, but in other ways it's not, um, you know, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I can't imagine generally somebody who's going to do something like that multiple times and then who's going to keep it a secret, deny it at first and then bring it up and say, yeah, it did happen. Generally, probably is not going to be somebody that's going to be able to um, uh, walk through that path of healing with you. Um, and that's something I had to realize, you know, and I, I remember having to kind of let my sister go, let letting that dream of that relationship that I thought we could have kind of die. Um and uh, it really that I had to do that with with all my family to a degree. Um, and that's another place where I think modern religion fucks people up is because they pound this idea into your head that, especially if it's a parent that abused you, is you've got to respect them, honor thy father and thy mother, as a verse. Yeah. And and you know what I would say is I'll just say this: I I am not a, an advocate necessarily of of religion per se. Um, I th- um, I think. A lot of times there's a really lot of good stuff in it. But I will say that honoring your father and your mother is a really good idea. But honoring them doesn't mean doing what they say, and it doesn't mean doing everything they did to you. Um, It means taking what they gave you and treating it accordingly. And what my parents gave me was shit. 
so I treated accordingly. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I and I think it it goes back to the the thing that have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. And exactly. what a perfect example your story is that you had to save your own skin because oh yeah yeah I um you know part of the re- I. I ended up, um, when, when all this started happening and, um, like me talking about it openly within the family, um, you know, uh, all these other realities started to come out, um, as that's when I began to see that with my mom, like, I can't really have this conversation with her partly because of her own trauma. Like when I began to bring it up, like, again, um, one time she wanted to, when I, uh, lived in Portland, she wanted to come see me. She was living in Seattle at the time and she wanted to come down and clear the air. So she came down to Portland to see me and um we went out to um this chain mexican restaurant and um we ate and she was grilling me about religious questions because there was a change in religion for me and then um we uh uh went to this park and she whipped out this letter and it was the original letter i'd written to my sister when i was 18 and she says i have the letter right here and it was really kind of this you know kind of why are you still bringing this up why are you you know you forgave her and i said whoa i said i'm not going to talk to you about this you need to go home and so i got out of the car and left and um she followed me to my house uh one of my roommates came picked me up took me home and i was a mess of course she followed me to my house she came in she forced her way into my room and she uh um you know she began just kind of like yelling at me you know um like I remember at one point, I remember at one point I got really mad at her and I, I was telling her to leave and I said, fuck you, get out of my house. And she says, well, I can say fuck too. And just was, you know, not rational, you know, really. And at one point, like she started hitting me and slapping me. Um, she, uh, uh, threw a picture at me. Um, and it was just, I was like, we're done, you know? Um, like this was her way of trying to talk through things. Um, obviously I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and so I told her to leave. And, um, eventually I said, if you don't leave, I'm gonna have to call the police, um, on my mom, um, which, you know, isn't as uncommon as, yeah. <laughs> as we think. But, um, once, uh, once she left, um, I wrote her an email and I said, this is this was a side of my healthiness at the time. I said, thanks for having the courage to come down to see me. Um, <laughs> and really, I don't know what I was thankful for. And that wasn't sarcastic. No, no, yeah. no, it wasn't sarcastic. I was genuine. I mean, this is yeah. me really trying. And then um, I said, you know, obviously there's something you want to talk about. So if there is, please write me a letter. I'm not interested in talking about it, but please write me because I want to know what you have to say. Um outside of just wanting to hit me. And at, and at one point she said, just go ahead and hit me. I know you want to. Um, she's working out all sorts of stuff. Wow. Yeah. Uh, her childhood was horrific. Um, and so knowing though that that's what I was dealing with kind of in a, in a, in a mom, I realized, whoa, like I, I can't go very far with her, you know, like how can I expect her to really deal with this when this is what I think, you know, in that point I, my relationship with my mom really changed. I began to kind of treat her as an Alzheimer's patient almost that I wasn't really dealing with the mom I thought I had when I was 12. I was dealing with something else. Um, and so, and was your therapist helping you Yes, with this? Because that's such 
a leap for somebody to make on their own. Yeah, no, that, I, that, that alone. Yeah, yeah, no, with a therapist and with he's the one who told me. I mean, I was I was in tears in his office, and he told me he goes, "I think it's time that we can say goodbye to your mom." And then they were turned into kind of tears of relief because I, I didn't know what to do. I, I still felt responsibility to make this work. And felt like a bad person. Oh, you felt like a, a shitty son. And now having a kid, I, I will say it's impossible to be a shitty kid. Impossible. But it's amazing how many of us feel like we were. But there's no such thing as a shitty kid. But I felt like a shitty kid. Um, and uh, so he kind of gave me permission to let her go. Um, help me do that. And so I, I did, and it was, um, it was such a relief. But that's also when the relationship also became harder in a different way. Um, it, it became exhausting. Did you, through letters, just through letters? No, at that point, you know, I, I, re- I mean, I think there was a year period where I didn't really, it was only letters. So you let go the idea of having a, 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 the relationship that you wanted to have with yeah, her. You yeah. didn't cut her out of your life. No, no, I okay. didn't. Um, but when I would see her after that, it became nothing but reflective statements, you know, just kind of above board kind of stuff, you know, never any depth to anything. And my mom's the kind of person where she would say on her part. No, on my part. Okay. Um, on her, my mom's the kind of person who would say, um, so Paul, you know, what are your views on unemployment? And then you would get about three words out and then she would just cut you off and start telling you what her mm-hmm. views are. And so I, you just are quiet a lot of the time. And, um, normally I was kind of okay with that, but the, now I wasn't really, but I kind of knew that who I was dealing with. So I just kind of, the relationship became very exhausting. Just, um, I, I, I had to kind of shut myself off to be around them. And, um, but that was the reality. Um, I just, I wasn't safe. And I would imagine too, with the work that you had done, you began to recognize yourself shutting down, which is such an important thing because most of us that grow up shutting down don't know that that's what we Mm -hmm. do. That's our normal. But when you begin to get vulnerable with people and speak in a way that is emotional and you feel heard and respected, you, it's then so much easier to compare your unhealthiness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it didn't happen for me. I wasn't able to see that that was going on in me until I was uh, dating somebody who got to go, my, my wife now, dating, I, we were dating at the time, and she went with me to visit them. And she got to kind of see the reality of that I would just shut myself off, and my parents are really different from me in a lot of ways. Um, and when we got done with the trip, she actually went to Central America, my wife did for a little bit, and then um, for school for a couple of weeks and came back, and I was completely shut off, just emotionally distant. And she was like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know, you know? And, you know, and, and it's because I, I, I didn't know how to exist around my parents anymore. And so I just go in emotional shut off mode, because that was easier than, that's what I learned to do. It was easier than actually acknowledging how I felt. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and then through therapy, I was able to kind of, my wife would do the same thing. She was she would come home from work and she would say, "Did you did you talk to your mom?" Because <laughs> you're completely shut down. Totally, yeah. Oh yeah, get a letter or an email. I mean, um, later on, I actually started working with my dad. Um, stupidest move ever. Um, but I got a job at where he worked. Um, he got me a job, I should say. And um, yeah, there were days when you know if I had an interaction with him, like 
I smoked at the time, so you know, I'd, I'd walk around the block and just chain smoke cigarettes, and I didn't know why. You know, and I'm like, now I look at like, well, dirt to dirt. You know, I deal with that on a daily yeah. basis. But so is is that kind of it as far as the the arc of you processing it? No, really? not really. I mean, um, what ended up the kind of culmination of it all was um, I had for a couple of years I'd gone kind of been interacting with them on a very distant level and trying to make it work that way, um, and then it was with my dad that I said, Dad. Here's why I'm not close to my sister. Um, you know, here's what she did to me. Um, and he said, he responded great. He said, take all the time you need. And um, I was like, this is awesome. And then um, a few weeks later, he, that's when he said, well, I just keep coming to the fact that she was just a kid. You know, and I got pissed. For the first time, I got pissed. And I said, I said, well, when, what was just, what was I? I was just a kid then, too. You know, but for me, I, um, that just means being raped for her. It means doing something she wasn't supposed to do. And so, um, he really didn't have a good answer and he just kind of skirted it. And then, um, one time we were having a conversation and he asked me, he said, well, well, you know, son, what do you, what do you need from me? And I said, nothing. And he got pissed, really mad at me. He was like, what do you mean? You don't need anything from me. And I said, I had gotten to a point where I didn't need anything anymore. And all of a sudden I realized that's how our relationship existed and there's no relationship to be had unless I need him for something. And, um, and so at that point it was distant and I began to see more behind the curtain with my, with my dad. Um, I remember at one point he came over um, to our house and we decided to see how long he would talk about himself without us saying anything. And it went for, I want to say it was like an hour and a half. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How I existed in that and never realized it, I have no idea. But he just went on. And he became, he became a lot more antagonizing. Um, like at one point he said, you know, you know I can see how... After uh, I'd gotten married, he said, I can see how um, your wife, or you're, you're good for your wife, but I don't know how she's good for you. Um, that's insulting. Isn't it, though? And I was just like, and, but that's the kind of things you'd start throwing at me. And so I just said, well, I, I, th- I think I probably know better than you do. So, you know, I, that's, but that's the response is I couldn't, he was trying to throw hooks at me to get me mad. Yeah. And I just had to stop responding to that. And so the relationship became just exhausting and and so i i uh, we were supposed to go out there for thanksgiving they had moved to colorado at this point and i sent uh both my sister my sister and my mom and dad a, a letter and said we're not coming out um and gave him kind of the litany of very concise yet very poignant i didn't try to throw any punches i wasn't trying to be really descriptive i was just trying to say these are the facts what happened this is why i'm not going to be coming out there from this point forward, if you do have anything you want to say to me, please, or I said, I, will, I won't answer your phone calls, but you can write me a letter. And, um, and so they wrote me a letter. Uh, the, my mom wrote a letter, my dad wrote a letter. They sent them as registered letters, actually. Um, Odd. Well, they typed them out as an email and then printed them off and then sent them as registered letters to me. Um, it was just so, uh, everything about it was just so weird. I. There, there's a level of paranoia there with them that I don't even know 
exist. But um, but when this is how I why I, I I'm so glad I wrote letters because now I get to go back and read the crazy in black and white. And like before I uh, came here today, I was reading through these emails and these letters, and holy shit, they are nuts. Um, when you read a letter that I would write to them and then read the response to that letter, you're reading, it's almost like you're reading two different conversations. Like, you know, what I say and questions I ask, and then they just go off on something else. Um, or as, as my dad was so good at doing, he would just say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for everything. And that somehow has absolved him. Do you, you know, I, I, I keep thinking that for people like that, that don't know that emotions are something that can be processed and, that, and, feelings can be changed. I think for them, it's all about blame and, and right and wrong and who is in the position of power and who isn't, mm-hmm. which is such a horrible place to try to process things from because there's no chance for vulnerability. No, there's no chance. It, and it was all about power, particularly with my dad, all about power, all about control, all about making sure that his impression management, he was maintaining this idea. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, when I, when I, that letter that I sent to them saying, I'm not going to talk to them anymore, the responses they gave me were, uh, that is one of the things that keeps me sane when I have second thoughts about not talking to them is if I just go back and read those letters, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I'm dealing with. And and that's the thing too, about having been through something traumatic is our brain, the brain that fought to protect us, that said that wasn't something necessarily bad when we were kids, that part is still there mm-hmm. telling us we're either exaggerating it or we're making it up or we're, you know, yeah. a baby or whatever. And yeah. and you better have some, some ammo. I constantly go back to what my wife said when I broke down and I said, my mom tricked me, she used me. And she said, I've been waiting 20 years for you to say that. Mm-hmm. And that... On those days when I start to feel like a terrible son, I go back to that, and it's really comforting. And I mm-hmm. and I also have some letters from in the eighties when she was writing my my brother and I about us not being good about cleaning the house, which I'm sure was true. But she said that it was that was the reason why her marriage was falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and when I read, I read that, I was like, "Oh, okay, I'm not making up that she is kind of crazy and right. really not healthy." Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. My mom actually used to do the almost exact same thing. She would complain and cry, get hysterical and mad at us that the house wasn't clean enough. And then I would go to help clean it, and you know, this is when I was a kid, and she'd get mad at me because we weren't doing it right. <laughs> um, so, you know, hearing that about. Your mom, that, that's why her marriage is falling apart is because kids weren't cleaning enough. You know, being able to see that is like, oh yeah. yeah. Because, well, there's a piece of us too that really wants that not to be true. So badly wants it not to be true. Yeah. And we will walk around the globe to find any other explanation for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you carry, you'll carry their guilt for them. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times to do that. And, um, that's, um, yeah, that's what I did for a long time. Anything else? Uh, as far as the art goes, well, um, you know, that I haven't spoken with them on the phone or anything, uh, since that. And that was in 2008. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm most 99% of the time. I'm so happy I made that decision. Um, 
my life is so much better. Um, it's less stressful. Um, I kind of let go of the ownership, my ownership of them um, in that. And so oh, it's been wonderful. Um, and it feels like you put the responsibility where it belongs. Exactly where it belongs. As a matter of fact, that was a line in the letter. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I said exactly that. Um, that, yeah, that the guilt and shame belong to them. Uh, not to me anymore and um, well you put the ball in their court you said yeah. here here are my boundaries here and, are the the things i require to move forward in a relationship exactly and i so badly wanted them to respond well so badly and they just couldn't do it they they whether or not they're you know i want to say they're incapable or whether they're choosing not to for me is kind of neither here nor there to a degree but um they didn't yeah and I, I, have to leave, I have to live with that reality, not the reality that I w- wish was there. Um, and so, um, yeah. Uh, plus, you know, at that point, too, I, I wanted to start a family of my own. And um, I, based on how they handled the abuse in our family, I, didn't, I wasn't sure I trusted them to be around mine. <coughs> you weren't sure what? I trusted them to be around my family. Yeah based on how they handled the situations yeah. in their own. Um, and so, yeah. Hardest decision I've ever made, certainly. But... I don't know what the hell is going on down the hall, but it <laughs> sounds like fun. It sounds like fun, right? <laughs> fun, or they're making a sequel to The Shining. Yeah, we're right. in, a, we're well, in my hotel room in uh, in Portland. Um, so did we answer the question how you feel it's it's uh, affected your, your sexuality? Um, if it has, yeah, it it totally has. Um, I think I've done a lot of process work with that. And so the ways it affected my sexuality was, um, processing it mostly through, through therapy, therapy. Yeah. And through experience, Mm -hmm. um, and being after, you know, having those experiences, particularly after therapy, um, is, is where the healing happened. It must must be nice too, that you have a wife who is a, uh, therapist Mm -hmm. because I would imagine you could just, she totally understands yes yeah she does understand she she gets it and her family has their own stuff and so we can relate you know um on a lot of levels but it's nice because even um she's just a compassionate person regardless and so um uh even even if she wasn't a therapist she will do it but her being a therapist she also understands the reality of situations more so than maybe others would um and it's huge my wife we're we're best friends and um we it's partly because we just she we get it you know um and uh yeah with her being honest you know like i like when i when i've been triggered like i we watched oh what movie was that i don't want to spoil a movie that doesn't matter um perks of being a wallflower have you Mm -hmm. seen that yep so you go the whole movie and then it ends with his aunt right yeah and you know, and once I saw the little boy when it came to the realization that his aunt had molested him, I broke down in tears. Usually, I can watch something like, um, oh, what was that movie with Denzel Washington? Oh, not Finding Forrester. Uh, he was like a naval psychologist. Oh, yeah. uh, I know what you're thinking of. But this this guy's babysitter molested him when he was younger, and he goes back and confronts her. I watched that movie knowing that's what it was about, so I'm okay kind of mm-hmm. doing that but when i don't know and this hits antoine me, fisher antoine fisher is that yeah. what it was yeah 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 
Um, but when I watched this other movie where it was a surprise, I didn't know that was coming. I, I was triggered for at least a week. You know. And when you say uh, triggered, describe for our listeners what that involves. Um, that I become emotionally distant. Um, I begin to feel the the shame and the guilt of it all again. Um, sex is the last thing I want. Um, even affection, I don't really want. Like, I don't want to be touched. Um, I become cold and um, not mean, but distant. And so I have to kind of process through that. And the more I do that process, the more I come out of it, the less time it usually takes. Um, and but, how, how do you process it when you're triggering? Just talk, talking about it? Yeah, I talk about it. You know, and luckily, with, you know, with my wife, um, I can tell her, you know, um, and it's not just because she's a therapist, but I can be honest with her mm. and just say, this is what's going on. And she's really respectful. I mean, um, even if we're, uh, you know, trying to get pregnant or something, you know, she's, you know, <laughs> I chuckle because I'm like, imagine telling someone who's been raped. No, 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 we have to do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, um, I talk about it with her. I, I have really good friends that I can talk about this with, um, and I should mention too that there are different types of triggering because sometimes you can be triggered uh, in a way that you feel hypersexual yeah, and you totally. you want to um, act out. Oh yeah. Oh, previously, if I was been younger, it just I probably would have gone and masturbated for three straight weeks. Um, you know, that's probably what it would have been. Um, uh, yeah, or or sought out a. Uh, um, a one night stand of some sort, mm. you know, like it would have been that kind of how it would have been dealt with. But even after those things would have happened, I wouldn't really have been processed about yeah. it. And a lot of people that have been, um, experienced some type of sexual trauma, it, it becomes kind of like a binary switch when you're triggered. It's either on or, or it's outside. off and yeah. there's not a lot of in between. Yeah. You know, and it, through the, actually, uh, this podcast and other stories I've been able to read, um, I know that actually I, um, I didn't get it nearly as bad um, in that way as far as triggers go as, as others did. Um, <clears throat> and um, But I definitely know what it feels like. Yeah, and sometimes it's uh, it's unexpected, and sometimes it's I know it's coming. Yeah. I had a, a therapist um, write me a nice email and said that she recommends my uh, podcast to a lot of her clients, but she warns them that they're – certain episodes may be really triggering mm -hmm. and it had never occurred to me that that yeah that would be the case and i suddenly felt terrible because i was like oh my god all the jokes and the this and that <laughs> but i can't i can't change what this well, what this is no and honestly that. i will say as a listener who, who's been triggered by sometimes things that uh uh your your guest will say um the humor is what gives me air i get to come up for air you know, a joke about oh, good. it, you know, and, and I'm at a point too, where I, I mean, I, I don't really joke about <laughs> being a rape victim, um, per se, but, um, I can joke about the the, the other things that have happened, the scenarios, and that's not, um, an issue. Um, but I more see that as a symptom of being okay with it as opposed to, um, laughing as a defense against it. Right. You know, there's, there's a difference. Yeah. There's a difference between laughing while you're confronting it. Yeah. And laughing to avoid it. Exactly. And I will say that there's worse things to do than laughing to avoid it. <laughs> so yeah, if you really laugh, are. laugh. Um, well, dude, thank you so much. Do you want to do uh, yeah. a, a fear off and a, and a love off? Yes. 
I am going to be reading the uh, fears and loves of a listener named Kate. Um, I'm afraid that my childhood dog will die before the next time I go to visit my parents. I'm afraid that I'm as shitty as my guilt-ridden ego inherited from my parents says I am. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm gay after all and I made a huge mistake by telling my parents that I wasn't anymore. That if I just would have made one different choice, my family would have dealt with their issues and I would have parents again and my son would have grandparents. Oh, I, I relate to that, by the way, that uh, maybe I didn't play this right. Yeah. Maybe I didn't handle this. Mm-hmm. It's my fault. Yeah. Um. I have this feeling that I've read Kate's uh, fears before, but uh, I'm just going to plow ahead anyway. Uh, I'm afraid that I have cancer. Um, just right to it. I know, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, well, it kind of depends on what kind of cancer I'd be afraid of. But yeah. um, that the feeling of cluelessness I feel when parenting is just me not putting enough work and my son's going to pay the price for it. I'm afraid that I have an STI even though I have no symptoms whatsoever. Um, that I am too old for grad school. I'm afraid I will have a panic attack in a public place. That I would become like my father and my son would decide that he doesn't want anything to do with me anymore and I wouldn't do anything about it. I'm afraid that no one will want to date me seriously because of my anxiety and my eating disorder. I'm afraid that I'm going to wake up one day and I will be the only one in the world who knows my dad for who he really is. Wow, that's deep. That is fucking deep. Yeah, well, I'll be the, the one crazy one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid that I'll never have kids. Uh, <clears throat> I'm afraid that all my friends find me annoying and that any time I call them to hang out, they roll their eyes and they only do it out of pity. <laughs> I'm afraid that I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid that after I die, um, my family will be standing over me saying, we were right. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Kate says, I'm afraid that I'll always, I will always be bulimic. Uh, that's all I have. Let's go into some loves. Okay. Um, Kate says, I love spending a lazy morning drinking a whole pot of coffee and eating peanut butter toast. <laughs> uh, that sounds good. It does sound really good. Um, I love when I have friends or acquaintances who work through their shit and I see dramatic difference in their quality of life. Oh, I, I second that one. Um, I love getting rid of things I haven't looked at in months and that are just taking up space. Um. I love that when I feel alone or frustrated in a feeling and I find out my wife has the exact same feeling that um, we get to talk about it. That's awesome. I love eating a meal when everything in me is telling me to skip it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love morning sex. There is morning sex. Almost everything done in the morning kind of hits you stronger. Mm -hmm. Getting high, (laughs) drinking, sex. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Anything that's no reserve for night. Yes. Uh, I love treating my body with respect. Uh, I love when uh, I make contact with a ball on the bat that's so square that I don't even feel the ball hit the bat. Oh, that is so good. And it, it, it's almost like it it stays there for an extra split second. Yeah, it's almost like you're lifting it. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah. You can, you can almost picture the ball flattening out. Mm-hmm. Um, I love those rare moments when I feel like the universe is reaching out and connecting with me. Oh, boy, do I love that. God. Yeah. Um, I love when I get my son to laugh so hard that there's no sound. <laughs> That's a great one. I love when it takes me less time uh, than I thought it would to get to work. <laughs> um, I love delicious thick-cut bacon dipped in egg yolk. Oh, that is good. 
I love when I watch a movie that I've seen a hundred times and I notice something new. That's a good one. Um, well, in the vein of not seeing my parents anymore, I love spending holidays with people that I want to spend them with. Isn't that the best? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I love when I find something awesome and free to do on the weekend. I love uh, playing apples to apples or cards against humanity with friends who are like-minded and have the same level of depravity. I love when I'm at a concert and the performer does a cover of an old song. I love listening to podcasts on the train. Uh, Kate says, I love the end of NHL lockouts. I love you, Kate. (laughs) Um, I love Saturday morning breakfast with my family. I love taking a day to be a tourist in my own city. Oh, what a great idea. That is a good idea. Um, I love watching uh, um, an Off the Beaten Path movie with my wife, and by the end of it, we're both crying and wondering why more people haven't seen it. I love going to New England and seeing a high school hockey game. Um, I love unsolicited I love yous from my son. That's beautiful. Uh, I can't imagine how good that has to feel. Uh, well, he's got a, um, a speech delay, so it, it actually sounds like I sew you much. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. I think you should backhand him and say you're saying it wrong. <laughs> Just say it again. How else is he going to learn? Exactly. This is your time to mold him. Yes. Uh, I love gel manicures in the perfect shade of dark red. Um, I love seeing my wife and her business partner have success or realize that what they're doing is better than what they thought. Uh, I love pedicures with a foot massage that lasts just a little bit longer than you think they will. I love reading through old emails from my parents and seeing the crazy in black and white. I love blueberry waffles with real maple syrup. (laughs) Uh, and I love realizing that I'm not as shitty as my guilt-ridden ego inherited from my family says I am. Well, that's a beautiful one to, to end on. Tom, thank you so much. You, um, you're just a beautiful human being, you know? I know I don't know you that well, but from this last hour and 20 minutes that I've, that I've spent with you, um, it's really moving and um, really touched by what a what a forgiving compassionate person you are i think your your kid is going to be a real lucky kid to have a dad like you thanks paul uh, many thanks to to tom for uh for all of that that uh, that really um really touched me what a great example of uh, of recovery and what's possible if uh, if you put the work in um before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, uh, that's one of the things about doing it. When you start to do a podcast a couple of, a hundred times or more than a hundred times, the things that you say in each one, the little messages, uh, you know, reminders, you start to feel like a broken record. There's a couple of different ways to support this podcast. You can support us uh, financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com and uh, making a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, signing up, signing up to be a recurring monthly donor. Um, that means the world to me. Even if uh, it's only $5 a month, it adds up, and it helps keep this podcast going. Um, you don't have to do anything except set it up that one time, and then as long as your credit card doesn't expire or you don't choose to cancel it, it'll just keep, uh, it'll just keep going, and that really, really helps um, me. That's the foundation uh, the financial foundation for this podcast. So if you're thinking about it, please, come on. Um, you can also support us by using our Amazon search portal. It is, uh, by the way, it's not 
uh, visible through Firefox if you're using that browser. It's not going to show up. I don't know why. But um, if you're using a browser other than Firefox, it's on the right-hand side of the homepage about halfway down. And that way, when you buy something from Amazon through that portal, Amazon gives us a couple nickels. doesn't cost you anything. And uh, you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes and giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show. And you can support us by spreading the word through social media. Um, A nice listener has uh, decided to uh, start a mental pod uh, Reddit page. So I don't think that's up yet, but I know he's going to work on that. And of course, um, you know, Tumblr and all that other stuff, um, Facebook. Any, any spreading of the word really helps. Um, all right, let's get into the surveys. This is from Shame and Secrets, filled out by a guy who calls himself Popeye. He's straight. He's in his 20s. Deepest, darkest thoughts, rape. What? I just get right into it, huh? Fuck anything in a skirt. Some of the porno I've been watching recently has been heading towards jailbait territory. Deepest, darkest secrets. I have had sex chats online since I was like 14. I've tried to stop. I've chatted to literally thousands of women trying to get myself off. Some of them are below the age of consent, though that was mostly when I was younger. However, it was more because they were female, not an age thing. My urges slow down when on meds, but it had ruined several relationships. If I was ever famous, I'd be so, so screwed by kiss and tells, even though it was all digital. Um... Let's see. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Taking control. I had an ex who liked to be choked and gave head like in pornos, and I think she set off a trigger in me somewhere for abusive sex. Um, Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? No, everyone thinks I'm a completely respectable gent. Uh, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? It feels like I'm living a lie. As soon as I'm on my own, and if I'm in a bout of depression, it becomes this compulsion that I'm so, so ashamed of. I have casual, drunken, unprotected sex because I feel so ashamed. Half the time, I'm so drunk to oblivion I can't remember the night before. Things have been better on meds recently, but I know it's lurking beneath the surface ready to ruin me. You know, the, the first thoughts that jump out to me is the, you know, the drinking to the point of oblivion um, is is something that, that you might want to address first because for a lot of people, you know, getting into that point of oblivion then gives them the permission, quote unquote, to engage in the stuff that really brings them shame and... Um, and I wouldn't look to meds to 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 solve all of this because it sounds like there's there's anger in there and there's something safe about objectifying women um, that um, and you know porn can really start to um, uh, warp when when it's the only way we view sex or sexuality um, it it can really kind of fuck up our our view of the opposite sex or whatever it is that's that's turning us on and we forget that there's this whole other thing of intimacy and i sound like a fucking old fogey this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself sancho says she is uh in her 20s she's bisex bisexual is raised in a stable and safe environment um was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it 
Deepest, darkest thoughts? I often think about what would happen if I said or did something completely inappropriate or hurtful to those around me, especially those I love. Deepest, darkest secrets. I am worried that being raped when I was 14 has affected me more than I have ever thought before. I'm afraid that the more time that passes, the more problems rise to the surface. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Many of my fantasies involve me being on display for a group of people to use as they wish. I sometimes wonder if this is a result of something that happened to me when I was very young but can't recall specifically. And the reason I wanted to read this is because um, something did happen to you. You were 14. That's still young. You know, even if you were uh, 25 and, and you'd been violated that can still affect your 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 sexuality you know i i had never had some of the sexual fantasies that not that i now have until i actually confronted stuff that happened to me um fantasies where i'm 11 again you know that's fucking uncomfortable thinking about that kind of stuff but i know that that's my brain just processing that stuff um and that's one of the things i was talking to lynn about today was it's it, it, you know, I, the first place I go to is shame. Like, what kind of a sick fuck, you know, wants to be 11 again and have, a, you know, an older girl or a woman do, do something to him? But that's the, that's the way our brains and our sexuality work. Um, so maybe there's some more stuff left there to, to process with what happened to you. Um, this is from uh, the same survey uh, filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Humble Girl. She's in her 40s. Uh, she identifies as straight, bi-curious, uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Mother did not believe it. Father took advantage of his stepdaughters. Uh, God, that is just a double fucking whammy. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts, being shaved by another female so that the male we both desire will have a better experience. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Watching my beloved, adorable partner enjoy himself with another female. Would you ever consider telling someone this? Uh, maybe. Uh, how does this make you feel? Uh, uh, generally, I like myself and think most people do not understand me. That's awesome. Uh, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by Lizzie. I actually have um, three of Lizzie's surveys back-to-back -back that I want to read. Sometimes I like to, when I notice somebody's filling out multiple surveys, I like to Gives me a better snapshot, kind of, of, of who my, my listeners are. My listeners? Oh, I just all of a sudden I hate myself for saying that. Um, and thank you, by the way, for all the emails that you guys send me that tell me you love the surveys, the shows aren't too long, and that I'm too hard on myself. I really appreciate that. Um, Lizzie is uh, straight. She's in her 20s. About her anxiety, she writes, my anxiety feels like I am a the keeper of a nuclear facility that could melt down at any moment. Uh, about her anorexia, it feels like a boss who is never happy with the work that I've done or the amount of time I've put in. About her OCD, it feels like being drugged, having your head put in a vice, and then being asked to write a doctoral thesis in an hour. Thank you for those. Those are so descriptive. Um, this is from her Shame and Secret survey. She writes... Um, she was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. My eating disorder takes priority over people. So I think horrible things about my husband and family when they ruin my, quote, eating plans. I've probably thought that I hated many of them in a dark moment. 
I have planned how I would lie to them so I could follow my own plans. I have thought people in my family were disgusting when they gained weight. I have thought that I would probably die before I hit 30. I've had periods where I wish that I were courageous enough to kill myself. I've been afraid. I hate when people use the word courageous when it comes to killing themselves. Um, uh, I've been maybe desperate would would be a better word. Um, I've been afraid that I was demon possessed. I've been afraid that I would do inappropriate sexual things to others. I've been afraid that I would hurt others. Deepest, darkest secrets. I've cut myself every once in a while, even though I promised my husband uh, I wouldn't. I've made a life of lying and hiding food so that I could eat and exercise the way I wanted. Uh, I've been anorexic since college, though that's not a secret to very many now. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Um, I don't really have, I'm not comfortable having sexual fantasies as I worry about um, doing something wrong. As a Christian, raised in a Christian home, of course, sexual sins were huge. I still occasionally have some of that fear bubble up. When I do have fantasies, they are usually involving rough sex with my husband or having him perform oral sex on me. I imagine him doing things like pushing me into walls or having sex with me on the counter. Occasionally, I will think of being able to do sexy things like a strip tease. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Since my fantasies are so mild, of course I would. It's a little difficult to start the topic, but I could talk to my husband about most of it. I do feel more reticent to talk about things that I could do that are sexy. I am not a sexy person, and I am a perfectionist with low self-esteem. That right there explains why it's hard for me to want to bring up the topic. I'm afraid to be bad at something, and I don't know that I'm capable of being sexy, at least not what most traditional Western thought would consider sexy. And I can't imagine how many people hearing that paragraph just said, me too. Um, do these feelings generate, uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? I feel small. I feel bad. I feel less than I should be. I am a per perfectionist, and it's easy for me to see what I think I could be, even if most people wouldn't expect that much of me. I feel disgusting, awful, evil, and wrong. Uh, I just want to send you the biggest hug, Lizzie. Um, and this is from her shouldn't feel this way survey. And um, if you could use a time machine, how would you use it? I would watch my past to see how my brain, thought patterns, and actions got into this twisted mess. Maybe understanding would give me some hope and some relief. I relate to that. Oh, boy, do I relate to that. Um Shouldn't feel this ways. I'm supposed to feel disgust about my eating disorder, but I don't. I feel safe and in control. I'm supposed to feel disgusted about my lying, but I don't. I feel in control and relief. I'm supposed to feel driven and passionate about my life, but I don't. I feel apathetic and hopeless. Um, how does writing that make you feel? Sad and disgusted. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I think that with the problems I have, it's not surprising. Uh, not not what I hope a majority of people are thinking, but I know I'm not alone. And I'm, I'm grateful that you, you know you're, you're not alone, Lizzie. Um, and then this last grouping of surveys is from um, two surveys from a guy who calls himself Paul of Tarsus. And he is straight in his 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about having an orgy with men and women. They are 18 to 20, uh, 18 to 21, fit, and of many different ethnicities. I get to come inside the women. The men are girly, sissy types. 
Deepest, Darkest Secrets. I met with an 18-year-old high school man that I found on Craigslist. We had sex. Me on top a couple of times. I am married. I consider myself straight because I don't emotionally like men at all, but so long as I'm the one fucking him. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I mentioned the orgy in the previous question. I like vulnerability. The more submissive, the better. I like to lick my wife's asshole. She's not that into it, but I get super hard when I do it. I often think about eating young women's pussies. Uh, well, get in line. <laughs> uh, would you ever consider telling a partner um, your clo- or, or close friend? Uh, no, I'm too ashamed. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? Uh, they make me feel like I am a sicko. Um, you are not a sicko, Paul. You are not a sicko. And I'm telling that to me, Paul, and to you, Paul. And this is from uh, Paul's uh, Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. Uh, how would you use a time machine? Recently found out that I was adopted. I'd like to see myself being born. Um, shouldn't feel this ways. I'm supposed to feel good about my accomplishments. Ivy League degree, six-figure job, decorated vet- veteran. Instead, I feel like I'm actually very dumb and have been able to fool people for years. I'm good at faking intellect. Uh, you know, which just goes to show me when we fantasize about having other people's lives or their accomplishments, it's like, man, if we don't feel good inside about who we are and we haven't let go of the shame from our past, it doesn't matter what we achieve and what a fucking treadmill that is to be on. How does writing your feelings out make you feel? I held so much in for so long that it feels really good. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I know that it is not normal and that God has something better for me. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better for yourself? That's why I'm glad I found your podcast intellectually. I know that there are others, but I still feel alone. Oh, Paul, I'm I'm sending you a hug, buddy, because you are not alone. And um, I want to I want to take it out instead of doing a happy moment survey. I want to take it out with a uh, a read some some ads for a fundamentalist matchmaker site. Fun-loving Pentecostal preacher looking for a good time. Turn-ons. Swift and merciless reckoning. Denial of worldly pleasures. Unflattering hairstyles. And long walks around the lake of fire. Fun-loving Orthodox rabbi just looking for a nice girl to walk 20 feet behind me. I want someone to wear black with in the searing heat. To laugh with me when Goyim try to pronounce our holidays. Fun-loving Quaker maiden, looking for the right anemic pallor to churn my butter and fill the hole in my sheet. Turn-ons, long stoic buggy rides, exhaustion at sunset, joint-crushing labor going unrecognized. Fun-loving Wahhabi princess, looking for a nice judgmental mullah to resist progress with. I'm just a simple girl from the Arabian Peninsula, looking for the right Jew-hater to accompany me into the 8th century. I want a committed relationship. No suicide bombers. I thought you guys would enjoy that. If you're out there and you're listening, I hope you got a laugh out of that. And I hope you felt something in your soul from from this episode. I know I did. And um, I'm so grateful for you guys. And um, if you're out there and you're struggling, don't give up hope. You're not alone. There is always hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask for help. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.